Podglomerate original. Hey, Trailweight listeners. Before we start today's episode, I wanted to quickly tell you about another podcast, The Carbon Copy. Climate change can often feel like a far-off problem or tend to be siloed as a scientific story. But everything is a climate story. And that's where The Carbon Copy comes in. Hosted by climate reporter Stephen Lacey, The Carbon Copy covers climate change by connecting it to the significant cultural, economic, business, and tech trends that shape the world around us. Produced by Postscript Media and Canary Media, The Carbon Copy informs, enlightens, and sparks curiosity about how a changing climate affects our lives. From Russia's war on Ukraine to the housing crisis to decisions handed down from the Supreme Court, The Carbon Copy explores how climate change and the energy transition connect to today's biggest stories. To hear more, follow and subscribe to The Carbon Copy on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. Hey, podcast listeners. Are you planning holiday travel, dreaming of your next big adventure, or finally satisfying your wanderlust? If so, the next step might just be checking out Expedia's podcast, Out Travel the System. More than travel hacks, Out Travel the System breaks down travel-related stereotypes and showcases just how much there is to see and experience in the world. You'll hear from expert guests like Condé Nast's former creative director, Yolanda Edwards, and industry pioneer, Jessica Nabongo, who is the first black woman to visit all the countries in the world. However, and wherever you travel, follow Out Travel the System everywhere you listen to podcasts. In 2021, as wildfires shut down Sequoia and Kings Canyon National Park, I was forced to cancel my backpacking trip through Sequoia's Mineral King. This was my second trip of the season to be halted by fire. I was worried about my future hikes and the future of these forests. I was worried about my impact, however slight, on what felt like an alarming trend of environmental damage caused by humans. I felt discouraged. I could turn away a million plastic straws, bring a mug from home when ordering coffee, or buy seasonal produce from farmers markets. But none of that feels like it's doing anything. I wish there was some sort of cosmic undo button my actions could press. Back at home, with my Mineral King library book and an overflowing amount of tabs open on my internet browser, I wondered if anyone asked these type of questions when, in December of 1965, the U.S. Forest Service awarded Walt Disney Productions the right to develop a ski park in the Mineral King area of Sequoia National Forest. Or if any echoed these concerns about the environment when, a month earlier, Walt Disney announced the purchase of over 27,000 acres in Orlando, Florida for a new project dubbed Disneyland East. I don't particularly like asking these types of questions, probably because I don't want to know the answers. I don't want someone to tell me that if I genuinely believe in X, I should really do Y. As much as I appreciate it, I don't like being called out. I can get headstrong when I get an idea. I'm excited and often I can let this excitement take over. The fires aren't that bad. We're far enough away. Let's at least drive up there and see if we really need to cancel. Well, deep down inside, I know these aren't the right reactions. 
but I really wanted to backpack through Mineral King. Maybe too, some of this was true of Disney. I mean, 1965 was an exciting year for his company. Disney News Magazine published its first issue. Seven feature films are released. Disneyland celebrates its 10th anniversary and Great Moments with Mr. Lincoln, a technical marvel, opens. Plus, two new theme parks begin development, one in Florida and the other in California's Sierra Nevada mountain range, one surrounded by miles of swampland and the other at the end of a small, seasonally open, incredibly winding road. Maybe we don't like asking questions because we're afraid of the answers. I'm Andrew Steven, and this is Trailweight, a podcast about hiking outdoors and the lessons learned along the way. The mountains of California are littered with ski runs, everything from rope pole single tracks to huge resort cities. One of my go-to hikes is just outside of Los Angeles on the site of a seasonal ski area on Waterman Mountain in the San Gabriel Mountains of the Angeles National Forest. And like Walt Disney's favorite resort, Sugar Bowl, Mount Waterman also claims to have had the first chairlift in California. I've never had the privilege to be there during the winter, but if it's anything like the summer months with an added blanket of white, I can only imagine how beautiful the area would be. Mount Waterman slopes have been closed off and on over the years as larger resorts draw the public and smaller slopes find it challenging to compete. Plus, the area wasn't built to handle large crowds of visitors or cars and a string of bad weather hasn't helped either. In 2009, the station fire exploded, burning much of the surrounding mountainside. And while the ski area remained safe, primarily from damage, the fire closed the highway for the 2009, 2010, and 2010-2011 ski seasons. Fire damage, road closures, severe droughts, and a pandemic have left Mount Waterman seemingly more closed than open in the past decade. However, its chairlifts still stand, dangling in remembrance of its former glory, a symbol of small ski parks that used to freckle the California mountains. More than 50 years before I hiked Mount Waterman, Disney worked on his plans for the Mineral King Ski Resort. One of his colleagues, Harrison Buzz Price, who helped research Disneyland's site in Anaheim, helped Disney scout potential locations for his Alpine Village Ski Park. They considered San Gregorio near Walt Disney's home in Palm Springs. They looked into Aspen, Colorado, and even came very close to buying Mammoth Mountain in California. The Mammoth Resort went so far as to begin negotiations with Disney, but ultimately pulled out at the last moment. Today, for many, the Mammoth Resort is in a league of its own and has become the training home of some of Team USA's best snowboarders and free skiers. To someone whose idea of a ski area is more like Mount Waterman, Mammoth is already so Disney-fied. It would be interesting to see how it would have turned out if Disney Productions ended up purchasing the resort. But just a few hours drive away, in Sequoia National Forest, Disney's team scouted Mineral King, approximately halfway between Los Angeles and San Francisco. 
The team felt like its location made it central for potential visitors. Plus, the peaks surrounding the valley offered protection from high winds and held the area in a cradle of beauty and seclusion. And so, concurrent with building a resort in Florida, Disney began the process of building his $35 million year-round ski park in the Sierra Nevadas. According to an article in the LA Times on December 18, 1965, the Disney firm in its winning bid estimated that the new facility, 227 miles north of Los Angeles, would attract 2.5 million visitors annually, 800,000 of them from out of state, by 1976, the first full year of operation. Disney's ski resort and Orlando resort were pushing ahead full force. However, there was one thing halting the progress in Mineral King. Disney's 30-year permit from the Forest Service was contingent upon maintaining an all-weather, 25-mile-long highway, winding its way through giant sequoia trees on a treacherous mountain in the Sierras. And to complicate matters, the Mineral King Basin was within Sequoia National Forest, under the jurisdiction of the Department of Agriculture, but surrounded by Sequoia National Park, which was under the jurisdiction of the U.S. Department of the Interior, creating bureaucratic hurdles unrelated to the physical challenges of the landscape. Yes, there was a road and Disney wouldn't be starting from scratch, but it was only partially paved, narrow, and only accessible in warmer months. Heavy snowfall closed the road during the winter, which isn't ideal for a ski resort. This wasn't necessarily as much as a problem as it sounded. Disney, inspired by his time in the car-free ski town of Zermatt, similarly wanted to limit automobile access to Mineral King. His solution was an off-site, 10-story, underground parking garage. Visitors would then board a small train and arrive at the resort by railway. Disney was excited, both by his love of locomotion. As a side note, he even had a small yet rideable model train in his backyard. But he was also excited by the possibility of creating a more memorable experience for the resort's guests. And, if a train couldn't work, Disney also pitched a monorail as another way to limit cars and shuttle guests to Mineral King. But, even with all these ideas, an all-season highway was still a requirement in order to open his park, even if he built a railroad or monorail. Questions swirled as many wondered if it even would be possible. Was the area too remote? Could Disney raise enough money? Was there too much red tape to make it a reality? If you're looking for another podcast to listen to, check out Vanishing Postcards, hosted by Evan Stern, Vanishing Postcards is all about being outside, on the open road, and seeing new places. In the latest season, Vanishing Postcards invites listeners to drive cross-country on Route 66 and experience everything from a dance in Tulsa to an eating contest in the Texas Panhandle to a morning on the Santa Monica Pier. Vanishing Postcards explores how this iconic road's past, present, and future are revealed through the stories of the people and places on Route 66 today. If you're looking for an episode to try, check out Postcards from the Mother Road, The Roots of Route 66, 
and hear all about how the legend of Route 66, which spans almost 7,000 miles, came to be. You can join their road trip by following Vanishing Postcards wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by our sponsor, BetterHelp. When learning how to backpack, one of my first purchases was a small, portable butane stove. And the first thing I saw when I opened the box was a small folded up set of instructions. After a quick read, I turned it on and it worked without a problem. Unfortunately, not everything comes with a set of instructions. And life is one of those things without a user manual. And most of it isn't problem free. So when life's not working, it's normal to feel stuck, lost, and unsure of how to proceed. We may not have an instruction booklet for life, but thankfully there are people trained to help us navigate a career change, work through relationship issues, and help us approach feelings of stress, anger, or anxiety. I've personally found therapy to be beneficial in talking through complex issues, processing pain, learning productive skills, and so much more. And BetterHelp has connected more than 3 million people with the help they need. If you're thinking of giving therapy a try or are having trouble finding the right help, BetterHelp is a great option. It's convenient, accessible, and affordable. And, as the world's largest therapy service, BetterHelp has matched 3 million people with professionally licensed and vetted therapists, all available 100% online. Plus, it's affordable. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to match with a therapist. You can easily switch to a new therapist anytime if things aren't clicking. It couldn't be simpler. No waiting rooms. No traffic. No endless searching for the right therapist. Learn more and save 10% off your first month at BetterHelp.com wait. That's Better, H-E-L-P, dot W-E-I-G-H-T. We have this forest service, right? And they issue a request for permits to develop this ski resort in Mineral King. What is the purpose, I guess, for lack of a better term? Like, what is the whole permitting process look like? How does that differ from developing, say, Disneyland versus developing in Mineral King? Well, the big distinction is here you're developing on publicly owned lands that are owned by the United States and the citizens of the United States, as opposed to a private development like Disneyland. This is Professor Dan Selmy. I was a professor of law at Loyola Law School, Loyola Marymount University in Los Angeles. I'm now professor of law emeritus. And he's the author of the new book, Dawn at Mineral King Valley. Public lands are managed by public agencies. In this case, the agency that managed Mineral King was the Forest Service. But another agency was involved, and that was the Park Service. And Mm -hmm. the reason for that was to get to Mineral King, there had to be an expanded road. And that road had to go through Sequoia National Park to get to Mineral King, which was not part of Sequoia National Park. So you had the Park Service involved and the Forest Service involved, and they're very different agencies. At the time, they were remarkably different. The Forest Service was largely a development agency famed for logging in national forests, promoted development of the public lands. The Park Service, by its nature, was a preservation agency. Yeah, Department of Agriculture versus Department of Interior. I mean, it's one of the strange anomalies of history that two big public land agencies, the Forest Service and the Park Service, are in different departments of the federal government. Over the years, there's been a lot of suggestions that they really belong under one department, but politics is dictated otherwise. The most significant difference between the two agencies is the multi-use mandate for national forests. National parks are rooted in preservation, almost singularly focused on, literally, attempting to preserve the land as it is. 
On the other hand, the National Forest's mission is multi-use for timber, recreation, grazing, hunting, wildlife, fishing, and more. And these two approaches have seemingly been at odds since their inception. As a result, they have been the source of many debates among those who identify as environmentalists, conservationists, farmers, landlovers, tree huggers, and anyone who uses these lands. Take Walt Disney, for example. He considered himself a conservationist and was concerned about his resort's effect on the surrounding national park and natural environment. Having been recognized for his efforts in the past by the American Forestry Association and the National Wildlife Federation, Disney's vision was to conserve the natural beauty of the forest by building a theme park in it. In the spring 1966 issue of Disney News, Disney wrote, The area's natural character will be preserved by camouflaging ski lifts, situating the village so that it will not be seen from the valley entrance, and putting service areas in a 60,000-square-foot underground facility beneath the village. On first reaction, it's hard for me to square preserving the area's natural character with building a 10-story underground parking garage, railroad, and 60,000-square-foot underground facility beneath the village let alone the millions of people who would come to the area. Now I get it. I don't think we should close the gates on these outdoor places and say no humans are ever allowed to be here. But our impact on the environment is undeniable. So I'll, I'll, I'll dive in here with a little bit of context. Okay. Continuing on in my journey to figure out what it meant to be a responsible outdoors person, I had the opportunity to speak with Dr. Ray Wynn Grant. She's a wildlife ecologist, conservation scientist, and a host of a few podcasts and television shows about humanity's influence on the natural world. For the first season, it was very much a personal story. In the process, like a lot of good stories, everything goes on as unplanned as possible. And really, it became a story less about like the physical, biological weight and more like the emotional, spiritual, I guess, weight for lack of a word. In the process of training, my mom passed away. In the process of writing and recording the podcast, my brother passed away. And then just when you're out in nature for 30 days, you know, you just, you think a lot. And so a lot of things start to come up. And we sort of touched on some of these questions about like, what does it mean to be a responsible outdoors person? And that sort of weight that you carry as well when you go out and experience the world. This idea that most of the people I have conversations with about nature, most of the stuff I see written about nature is the sort of nature's effect on us and how uh -huh. it impacts mm -hmm. us. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I'm really curious about learning more is sort of our impact on nature. Yeah, and there's so many different ways to answer this question, but what comes to mind first for me is like my PhD dissertation. So I, I did my PhD studying a population of black bears in the Sierra Nevada mountains um, up near Lake Tahoe, but on the Nevada side of Lake Tahoe, like Lake Tahoe, the actual lake of Lake Tahoe is like in both states. So on the Nevada side, which is important <laughs> when you're out there, like those distinctions matter. Because the bears like to gamble or... <laughs> Because like, like there's like a culture, you know, like, like the California side of Tahoe, like 
culturally is like touristy and like Bay Area, you know, vacationers. And the Nevada side is like local people who've been around for a while and, you know, like have a strong identity rooted to that space. And so I learned, I learned probably the hard way that that's like, you have to distinguish. So I was studying the movement and the behavior of black bears in the Lake Tahoe region. And I was mostly interested in how bears move around the landscape. Like literally I'd put, you know, a GPS tracking device on a bear around its collar, put a collar on with a tracking device, and then like look on a computer screen on a map to see like where it's going every day or every week or every month or every year or for several years. And then like seeing those patterns of its movement. And it was mostly to see like, well, where does it spend a lot of time? Which areas does it avoid? And I wanted to look at this as a function of human activity. So there's different levels of human activity in different areas. And we can look at that at different scales, right? So I'm getting like kind of nerdy with it, but you can look at like, like a big scale, like a, like if you just look at like the region in general, you could be like, okay, this splotch on the map is like, you know, lots of people are here. And this splotch on the map is like rural, so no one's here. But then you can actually zoom in and look at a very fine scale approach of like different levels of human activity. And so, you know, I'll spare like all the statistics and whatnot. But essentially what I found is that bears are extremely, extremely sensitive to fine scale changes of human activity. So like if you even think of like a hiking trail, right, like unpaved in the wilderness, like a bear will avoid a hiking trail that has been used by like one hiker who like took their dog on a walk that will like change the bears like patterns of movement for a day or a couple of days or a week. And I didn't necessarily do work to judge whether that's good or bad for the ultimate health of the bear, but it was new work that explained they are highly, highly sensitive. These like large carnivores that can, you know, kill us are actually like avoiding human influence on the environment at these like really, really fine scales that we didn't know about before. Hearing Dr. Grant's research made me think about all the signs posted at campgrounds warning, beware of bears and asking us to store our food in bear proof boxes. It also made me think of Disney's country bear jamboree, where the bears just came out of the woods to entertain those in the audience. But it seems more like whenever possible, bears try and stay away from us even if we're in their home. And when it comes to bears, it's easy for the public to get confused because we see so many bears that like approach human areas, you know, that like come to the campground to steal food or like go into your backyard to like raid your trash can. One of the things that I really tried to do in my in that study was to study the like what we call the backcountry bears. So like not the trash bears, the ones that like don't run into people, like don't go into people's backyards because they truly represent a proper wild population of bears, right? Like that's like the real ecology that we're trying to understand. And from that, we can also deduce that like for every bear that you see in your backyard, like getting trash, there are like 10 times that many who that are avoiding your backyard and avoiding your areas that you're not seeing because they're scared or they're uncomfortable or they're disturbed, you know, by human activity. And the ones that are coming in are, you know, in many cases, like the ones being like pushed out of other areas, right? Like the population density way in the forest is too high. There's like, you know, so many bears per square mile 
square kilometers. So like some bears got to get the like low quality, like human habitat, <laughs> you know. And then, of course, there is, you know, every so often there's a bear that's just like comfortable in human areas or whatever it is. So the main thing is that they are deliberately making decisions. So if you see a bear on a trail that has people, that bear knows what it's doing, right? It has decided, gosh, I guess I have to do this uncomfortable thing today. I guess I have to share space with humans today, even though I really don't want to. But there's other stuff going on, whether it's climate change or drought or lack of food or whatever it is. Something is causing it to choose to be around people instead of like stay the heck away from them. I think that that using something as familiar as bears is a really nice way to kind of answer the question about like, how do we impact the environment? How does the environment impact us? Because we as humans are, are part of nature, right? Like we are natural, <laughs> we're part of nature, we're part of the wilderness, like it's not necessarily separate. And so there's a lot of arguments that the things that we create and the things that we build are also natural and part of nature. And all that is fine, but there's still a manipulation, you know, there's still change. Sometimes it's benign, sometimes it's, sometimes it's positive, and often, you know, it, it creates a disturbance. We as a society, you know, and, and mostly as like a mainstream, you know, American society, because there are plenty of American societies that have like gotten it right, <laughs> right? But they may not necessarily continue to have control. But we as a mainstream kind of Western American society, I would say largely have an unbalanced relationship with how we impact the natural world. And we have a, a detachment to the natural world. And I will include myself in that, you know. So even though I, you know, have devoted my life to protecting nature, I still find myself thinking of a separation, you know. So I find myself thinking like, Oh, I'm going to the field today. Like today's my like wilderness day, my nature day. Or like, oh, like I'm sitting in my office today, like podcasting. Today is not a nature day. You know, so I really think of my own life in that binary approach, which really shows like how I've been socialized to think of nature, even as someone who's like a, you know, conservation professional. Before the Forest Service awarded Disney the right to develop Mineral King in 1965, they first tried to attract a ski resort developer in the 1940s. The Sierra Club was one of the groups trying hard to get a ski resort built in Mineral King. But ultimately, the road issues and access problems ended that attempt. And during those years between, Walt Disney Productions earned over 30 awards for their conservation work. In addition, the Sierra Club made Walt Disney an honorary life member. Oftentimes when I hear people talk about conservation or protecting the environment or the negative impacts that humanity has on the, the natural world, it's often sort of like hitting pause and like keeping it exactly like however it is, maybe it how, how it was when you remember it a certain way or how it is currently. And what I hear, what it sounds like I hear from you, and correct me if I'm wrong, is like, no, there's always some adaptation and humans and animals and plants are sort of always in this, uh, uh, you know, flux and sure, it can get out of balance. Yeah. And, and, you know, there are certainly, you know, there are certainly some animals on this planet that evolved long before humans were present, you know, certainly. 
But I love to take bears and it's as an example because like for at least like I think like a minimum of 12,000 years in North America, bears and humans have coexisted here. And so that's a lot of time that like different populations of bears and different populations of people have lived and shared land and space and resources, right? Like we all drink water, we all eat, you know, fish and meat and, you know, stuff like we use the same resources. And, you know, of course, like in the North American landscape, there have been huge societal shifts, right? There's been, you know, genocides and occupations and settlements and a lot that has changed. And so a lot of those people that originally lived alongside bears are no longer necessarily in control of many of those landscapes anymore. But we do have ways of living to point to, you know, that worked, that functioned at that time. And there is knowledge, you know, there are knowledge systems that still exist that we can use to kind of inform what the future will look like. We know that the future isn't going to look very much like the past, you know, like so much is different. Even in the landscape that I'm talking to you from right now used to be dominated by grizzly bears. And grizzly bears have been extinct here for about 100 years. And now there's black bears, which are not one of the native species to this area. But there are ways that the past, what's worked well in the past can inform, you know, how to have a healthy, more balanced future. In the area surrounding Mineral King in the 1940s, locals petitioned the state of California to fund and build an all-weather road to Mineral King. The community, such as it was, wanted to entice developers to make a resort and encourage tourists to visit this area. But not until 1965 was the momentum sufficient enough to push the state legislature to transfer the old county road to the California highway system. Essentially, this meant it would be easier to build a new highway and eventually a new resort. However, between the 1940s and the 1960s, people's views of conservation began to change. As society adopted a preservation-centric mindset, the U.S. enacted the Wilderness Act of 1964, creating a legally binding definition of wilderness and protecting 9.1 million acres of federal land. For many, this was seen as an environmental victory, and for others, it was seen as more bureaucratic red tape. More evidence of society's changing views? When the Forest Service and Disney announced their plan in 1965, the Sierra Club, who endorsed the first 1940s attempt to develop a ski resort, now saw Disney's ski park development and construction as an enemy to the very thing they felt called to protect. But, headstrong into doing what he believed was not just right, but good for the environment, Disney pushed on. If you look at the Sierra Club's history, certainly recreation on the public land, such as skiing, was a large part of what the club membership did. Here's Dan Selmy again. Up through the late 40s, the Sierra Club had no objection to putting some sort of ski area in Mineral King. That organization, the Sierra Club, started to change in the 50s and 60s as it became much more environmentally concerned. It became aware that too much public use of sensitive public lands was not a good thing. And so its outlook on uh, attitude toward development proposals on public lands changed markedly over that period of time. And what period of time was that? Was that like a 10, 15 year period? It, It changed gradually, but certainly it changed in the 60s. The Sierra Club had a number of large battles 
regarding key developments, for example, dams in the Grand Canyon. And it originally had approved of one and then it had to change its mind on that. So as its internal goals change, and as the number of the individuals who belong to the Sierra Club changed, they were more environmentally oriented. It grew rapidly. You had a club that had an old line that was more user-friendly towards developments like a ski resort in Mineral King. And then you had new folks that were much more environmentally oriented. And the club had to deal with that internally. And then it, as it changed its mind on projects, such as the one in Mineral King, it then faced the problem of actually going back on what it had earlier decided. And that was a difficult problem for the Sierra Club. Yeah. And they weren't the only people changing views too. Like even government agencies changed how they managed as well too, correct? They, they did. And largely through changes in legislation, federal legislation that mandated the federal agencies to take environmental issues into account that they did not do so before. And this was a wrenching change for an agency like the Forest Service, which was sort of built on the premise that public land should have multiple uses, the more the better, and we're the best decider to choose what those public uses should be. We don't need, for example, in this case, the Sierra Club for years sought to get a public hearing on the ski proposal in Mineral King, and the Forest Service just saw no need for it. In order to appease the changing views, Disney launched a three-year environmental study to justify how building a road that would displace some 8 million cubic yards of rock and dirt through Sequoia National Park would benefit the environment. Others, however, began building a coalition to stop Disney and the Mineral King Resort. Would the study be enough to change people's minds? Would the difficult reality of building this all-weather road finally happen? Would Mineral King become the dream ski resort Walt Disney believed it could be? I'm wondering to 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 make it personal, like whether you're in the field doing research or whether you're just recreating or existing, like are you conscious? Are you thinking about your impact with nature? Are you thinking, are you making choices based on how this might affect that balance? Okay, so the answer is yes. And I hope that this can sound relatable to whoever's <laughs> listening, but like it's not always fun, you know? So I'm not always like, oh, yes, I'm so comfortable in managing my impact on nature, <laughs> right? Like sometimes it means that like I'm hauling a whole lot of trash around with me, you know, whatever it might be. When I'm spending time in nature, especially, I'm super, super conscious. And I will even add that. You know, I am in the market for a new field vehicle because I have to do a lot of driving to get to my field sites. And then even within my field sites, I actually have to do a lot of driving and sometimes off-roading. And I'm searching for an electric vehicle because they are very, very quiet and that is less disruptive. And obviously they pollute less, you know, like point source pollution is way less. And so even just the the noise that a truck engine can make, again, can be super, super disturbing to wild animals. And so I'm trying to minimize my impact in every way I can. What about outside of that in your, you know, time away from the field, the cliche of being a, a conscious consumer? Like, do you think about that all? Or is it just sort of like, 
more of a subconscious. And the bigger, broader question is like, should we be thinking about this stuff or is it, uh, is it on a much bigger scale? Is it societies and cultures and governments that, that are, you know, more messing with the balance of the individual? Thank you for suggesting scale here because, you know, I am a child of the 90s. Like I kind of came online into consciousness in the early 90s, right, when I was in elementary school and was getting all this messaging about like recycle and, you know, like be a vegetarian and, you know, don't use aerosol cans and, you know, all the things, right, that were happening. Same. And... I really internalize this idea that, you know, it is like individual action that will save our planet and our environment, right? Like that was like shoved down our throat. And so to this day, you know, here I am in, you know, a a geriatric millennial and I still, you know, have these tendencies and I have this lifestyle where I like, you know, will race to pick up trash or recycle a can or whatever it is, break my neck, you know, to do these things. And, you know, what's interesting is that this past year, actually this past spring, I had the opportunity to host a show from PBS SoCal. And the show is called Stop Saving the Planet. It is based off of this wonderful book that really educates the reader about how individual action is fine. You know, like it absolutely doesn't hurt. It is useful. But... You know, it is nothing in comparison to these big corporate forces that are driving environmental harm and destruction that, you know, no matter how much we recycle or drive electric vehicles or, you know, go vegan or whatever it is, if corporate forces continue on their same path, none of our individual or collective efforts will make a difference. And so the best thing that individuals can do is band together to push these big corporate forces to adopt more environmentally friendly practices. And that was really eye-opening for me. I encourage everyone to, you know, to watch the show digitally because it breaks down exactly where we have been brainwashed or misled, deliberately misled by a lot of different corporate capitalist groups to think that our little tiny tweaks are one way or another are what's going to make the real change. I really did learn to kind of detach from that obsession of like, what am I doing as an individual and really look towards like, what are the big, you know, machines that are moving against environmental health and wellness that we can push towards towards changing for the better because that's what's going to make the difference for you know all the future generations so with this sort of new viewpoint in mind what can we do you know the thing that really comes to mind for me is for anyone who loves outdoor recreation right which is many of us and probably everyone listening to this podcast i honestly think the most important thing you can do is vote A lot of people don't think of environmental legislation as something they have a lot of control over. But every ballot, every candidate, every election, local, regional, national, has some type of environmental thing on there. And I truly believe that if you love going outside, if you want to continue doing it, if you think more people should, if it's the place where you find joy, 
you got to get in that voting booth. You have to make sure that you are pushing in that way towards making the outdoors more accessible and more healthy for all kinds of people. Because, you know, down to just like the candidate that you vote for, even within the same party, it can be a major, major difference in terms of what our nature and, you know, wild spaces look like in the future. So so that's like my one thing. I'm like, don't go on a hike if you can't think of the last time you voted for the environment, right? Like, like make sure that it's both. Make sure that, and maybe that's where balance comes in again, you know? Like, make sure that you are being a responsible outdoors person, whether you're outside or inside. Special thanks to Dr. Ray Wynn Grant and Professor Daniel P. Selmy. Be sure to check out Dr. Ray Wynn Grant's podcast, Going Wild, all about hidden worlds and the action-packed, suspense-filled adventures of the wildlife conservationists who track them. Going Wild with Dr. Ray Wynn Grant is available wherever you listen to podcasts. Professor Daniel P. Selmy's book, Dawn at Mineral King Valley, the Sierra Club, The Disney Company, and The Rise of Environmental Law is available wherever books are sold. For more information, visit us online at trailweight.co. If you enjoy this show, please consider leaving a review, rating the podcast, and sharing an episode with someone who might find it interesting. Trailweight is produced and written by Andrew Stephen. Our story producer is Monty Montepar. Executive produced by Jeff Umbro and the Podglomerate. A Podglomerate Original.